Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found. Welcome back to Beyond Therapy, everyone. Today, I am really excited to have a very important conversation. We're going to be discussing research-informed best practices in treatment and assessment of LGBTQIA plus clients and explore our ethical guidelines in relation to offering competent and affirming care to these clients. We'll examine gender identity, gender expression, pronoun use and practice, gender blind spots, and the social construction of gender, as well as best practices in utilizing affirming language and offering resources for additional learning and education. We're also going to have a discussion on advocacy and anti-transgender legislation specifically, and how that relates to mental health outcomes. So to have this conversation, I am excited to be joined by Dr. Brittany Bate, who is the owner of Be Bold Psychology and Consulting, a queer-centered group practice offering mental health services throughout North Carolina. As a queer-identified psychologist, Dr. Bates' clinical practice, advocacy work, training, and consultation is centered upon improving access to culturally competent, affirming, inclusive care for queer plus folks, including transgender, non-binary, and gender-diverse folks. Her practice is centered on providing psychotherapy and letters for gender-affirming care for transgender, non-binary, and gender-diverse individuals. She holds membership in several professional organizations and peer consult groups centered on regular consultation on best practices in providing gender-affirming care. She's also an active contributor in authoring three statements based on psychological science to oppose the North Carolina General Assembly anti-transgender legislation. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation today. Well, I think that one of the things that excites me most is is how active you are in the advocacy work because I think for a lot of counselors particularly and this, you know, this podcast will hopefully reach folks from a lot of different uh, provider backgrounds, but at least for me personally and a lot of the counselors I work with engaging in advocacy feels like this sort of mystical, magical thing. So having your concrete experience, I think is going to be super helpful. Yes, I'm excited to share. Awesome. Well, let's maybe just get started with a, a review for some folks or new information for others. Uh, what are some of the basics of LGBTQIA plus affirming care in a counseling or psychotherapy setting? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, kind of just, just the main piece that I think is central to most of our ethical codes is to not cause harm. So I think part of not causing harm means having a basic understanding or work towards having a basic understanding of the unique needs and challenges of LGBTQIA plus clients. So, you know, something that comes to mind immediately is using the correct name and the correct pronouns of your clients and making sure that you're asking for what those might be um, if they're wanting to share. 
and being able and prepared and willing to author letters for gender affirming services if needed, I also think is really important. I've come across a lot of clients that make their way to our practice that, um, you know, had a therapist and they had a really great rapport with the therapist. And then when it came time to write the letter, the therapist wasn't able or was unprepared. And that caused a lot of harm. It caused a lot Mm -hmm. of harm in, in the trust and also just a lot of practical barriers to needing to be able to find now and invest time and energy into finding someone else to write a letter. Um, And that's already such a long process. So I think being ready and being able to do that and just staying up to date, taking trainings and staying up to date and, and doing your best, Um, you know, your paperwork, making sure that your paperwork has a place for name and then has a place for legal name if different. I think that's an important distinction or name on insurance if different. Um, You know, having a place again for pronouns and gender identity and avoiding any of the term other on your intake paperwork as well. Instead, maybe creating a fill in the blank spot if someone wishes to um, self-identify in a different way than the options that you're giving. So those are just some things that kind of come to mind for me. Um, And then, you know, just not assuming that just because someone is a member of the LGBTQIA community that they're seeking psychotherapy related to that. I have plenty of queer and gender diverse clients that just went through a breakup or they just moved, um, you know, maybe they're depressed or they're grieving and none of that has um, anything to do necessarily with their gender identity or their queerness. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important distinction to make. Um, And I think it's a, a, a helpful thing to name, especially for folks who, um, you know, come from heteronormative cisgendered backgrounds, privileged identities, um, is, is finding that sort of delicate balance between exploring gender and sexual identities without pathologizing, without making that the only focus. Um, does anything show up for you in terms of, uh, ways to do that. So, I mean, you're naming like the paperwork end of things, which I think is, you know, wonderful, the rapport building side of things. Any other tips that help you to find the the line or help you to instruct other providers on finding that line between acknowledgement versus hyper-focusing? I think, you know, the same way that that we are trained in many ways to do that with any client. I think that we engage our clients in building our treatment goals collaboratively. And ultimately, you know, if something around gender or exploring sexual orientation or something around that um, is coming up for them, they'll say it. They'll, They'll tell you when they are kind of talking about treatment goals and what they're looking for and what they need. Um, And there might be some interweaving, like, you know, we know that there might be, you know, more challenges with family relationships, perhaps that have to do or related to coming out, or perhaps someone is experiencing employment issues or job issues. And part of that is discrimination or oppression or chronic misgendering at work. So I think that there would be, you know, the intertwining there, but also sometimes, you know, bosses or colleagues are just jerks. And so there's also that piece as well. Um, So, yeah, I think it really is just um, engaging collaborative treatment planning and kind of really listening to what is coming up for them. Mm -hmm. I hear and I I love this emphasis on how much of the rapport building, um, how much of the trust and how much of the identity work really needs to happen on the front end. Uh, And I think it's so helpful to think about not just the sort of clinical skills that we might bring to that work, but also the administrative and policy-based way that we engage with identity. Um, 
I'm curious because this is something that shows up for me it, in the medical record that I use. It has, uh, you know, the gender for insurance and then it has the person's actual gender. Um, how do you navigate those conversations with clients when effectively there is going to be the possibly dead naming that is required misgendering that is required for payment for services. Do you have a spiel, I guess, that you give folks to help soften that or to help uh, reduce the harm that might be associated with that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's on the front end. Like I think it is when you are, you know, perhaps when I'm doing my consult call, um, myself and all the clinicians at our practice offer free 20 minute consult goodness of fit calls. So I think part of that is maybe orienting them um, during that process about what they may experience in terms of using our EHR, or if they are receiving a super bill that they're going to submit to insurance, just letting them know that their current you know, government name is going to need to be on that um, if they're submitting it to insurance. And so I think just kind of giving the heads up and acknowledging it's it's sucky um, and, and seeing if there's anything else that they'd want me to do or prefer for me to do. Um, you know, you can always send like a, an email when you send like a confirmation email, you can include it in there. Um, and that's that's an option. But yeah, or in your background intake paperwork, if you just kind of put a disclaimer in the paperwork that you can create and give to them that like, I know that our EHR isn't perfect. And I am sorry for that. Um, but these are all the ways that we're going to do our best to be able to honor your true name and your pronouns and your identity and who you are as a, a whole and complex person. That's making me think about my own sort of standard uh not the intake paperwork itself, because I think that's inclusive, but also just the the introductory email that comes with how useful that might be, how trust building it might be to have that wording specifically, you know, like this, this intake paperwork may not reflect who you see yourself to be, the right pronouns, the right names. We're going to work to make sure that that's embodied everywhere else in our work. Um, as opposed to the more kind of cisgendered heteronormative, please fill out this paperwork, no acknowledgement that that could be an issue for someone, you know, I mean, that's just really simple things. Yep. Just, just naming it, naming that we know that there's a lot of not so great things that happens. We know there's a lot of cisgender and heteronormative privilege, um, and that the creators of a lot of these systems are cis and het. And so, you know, it is their privilege to not have to think about these kinds of things. Um, so, you know, we're going to work our best within these systems that we have, and we're going to keep trying to do our best to change them. Well, let's focus a little bit on gender. Uh, so just to clarify some terminology for anyone who might have questions, can you tell us about the difference between gender expression versus gender identity? Yeah, so um, gender identity is one's internal sense of gender. So it can be male, it can be female, it can be both, it can be neither or any other combination. So it really is just our innate sense of who we are in terms of our gender. And it may or may not be aligned with one's sex assumed at birth. Um, and that is, you know, essentially just when the doctor took a look at the baby's genitals and said what the sex is. Um, and that is, you know, typically 
male, female, or intersex. Um, gender expression, on the other hand, is the way in which we express our gender and is typically related to any number of ways that we kind of relate or externally express it. So it might be wearing clothing um, that affirms our gender and feels good for us. It could be a hairstyle or a haircut. It could be facial hair or body hair or the lack thereof of those things. Um, it could be makeup or nail polish or the absence of it. It can also be mannerism. So, you know, the way in which we sort of move, sit, stand, or walk. Um, and then voice too, voice, pitch, and tone. And in some ways, language that we use. I'm sure that I'm missing things, but those are just some examples of what it is. And I think it's also just important to note that gender identity and gender expression may not always, you know, quote unquote, line up. Um, and what I mean by that is that people of all genders might wear dresses. People of all genders might wear bow ties. People of all genders may have shorter hair or longer hair. People of all genders may wear makeup or not wear makeup. Um, so I think while a lot of times it does align and people do express their gender in ways that feels good to them. Sometimes it is also not, um, I guess, aligned in the way that we might assume just because someone is feminine presenting, perhaps based on our own assumptions of what it means to be feminine presenting doesn't necessarily mean that their, their gender identity is female or just because someone's more masculine presenting doesn't necessarily mean that their gender identity is male. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because that brings to mind a conversation I was having with a supervisee about one of their clients who is um, a, a younger person, a teenager, and who has ex expressed verbally their gender identity as male. They were female assigned at birth. Uh, they went through a, a period of gender expression that was more male centered, you know, from a more standard male centered perspective. And then they moved into a space of a more female presenting and they were pretty, pretty um, binary about it, it seems. Um, so what showed up for the supervisee, though, was like, am I supposed to change the pronouns that I'm using? Uh, it feels like this person may be questioning, you know, that they had this very hard and fast experience of themselves as being male um, and is now dressing more in a feminine way. How how do you support that supervisee to help them be as affirming as possible for especially for, you know, a teenager? Yeah, you know, I think I think I would always want to explore with the supervisee, you know, what what kind of biases are do they hold to? Because we all have them. We all have our own internalized biases around what it means to be, you know, male or masculine, what it means to be female or feminine. So I would just want to explore or and, and what how we feel about neither, um, how we feel about sort of not, you know, ascribing to a binary. Um, and then I think from there, I would just ask them, you know, what, well, what have you, you know, where's your rapport at, obviously with the teen and what are conversations you've had previously that, you know, have you explored with them? Hey, you know, I noticed that you were sort of wearing this one day and now I noticed that you're kind of wearing this and I'm just wondering, you know, how either of those things are feeling for you. Um, and then you can also just do a quick check-in. You can say, Hey, you know, I really want to make sure I'm getting this right. So a quick check-in, what are your pronouns? Um, and see, because sometimes pronouns do shift and change. Sometimes people, um, use different sets of pronouns. I know several folks who, you know, use she, her pronouns on, on sometimes and some days and then other times, 
um, he, him pronouns feel better, or maybe, you know, some folks do she, her, and they, them. So I think you can just do a quick check-in too, just to make sure, you know, you really want to get it right. So. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really helpful uh, piece to reflect on, especially uh, trying to engage with what bias might be showing up because a conversation that we had been having around other clients was this question of do children and teenagers actually know what their gender is? Like, can we, can we trust their assertion when they're saying, Hey, I really want to do hormone replacement therapy, that sort of thing. And so, um, I mean, there's certainly, I think research support now, there was a study, I think that just recently came out that said like 98% of people who identify their gender as being something other than their gender assigned at birth, no matter how young, 98% of those people maintain um, whatever sort of gender identity they actually feel, you know, most connected to. So the research is there. And I think the bias is also still there. This sense of like, kids can't really know, you know, what, what is your experience of that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that I, I like to get curious as much as I can to try to understand why people think that kids can't know. And sometimes I, you know, ask people to reflect, Um, And it's different for everybody, of course, but, you know, I ask folks like, well, um, if I'm talking, let's say to a cisgender woman, so a woman who identifies as female and um, their sex assumed at birth was female or is female, um, I would say like, well, when did you know that you were a girl or female? Um, When did you kind of figure that out? And usually people were felt pretty confident in that, you know, around puberty, if not before, but definitely, you know, I think puberty tends to be a really big turning point for a lot of people because that's when we really are developing those secondary sex characteristics. And although people might have complicated feelings with their bodies around puberty, any people, all people, um, I think there's a difference. There's a difference for a lot of gender diverse folks when they are developing in ways that they didn't expect that they didn't really know that they were going to, that they didn't envision. Um, And it's really, really distressing and uncomfortable. I think the other piece is there is no, there is no data to my knowledge that says that this is the age at which our brain is developed enough to be able to know what our innate sense of gender is. There, there isn't any. And I, I believe deeply in research and forum practice um, as much as we can, can with the limitations in research. And what we do know is exactly what you said, Candace, that, you know, the majority of people who are asserting a gender identity that differs from their sex assumed at birth do persist in that assertion. And the other thing we know is that the vast majority of people who begin hormone replacement therapy, those that that wish to continue for the course of their life, they don't discontinue. And for those that do discontinue, that's usually because of a medical contraindication. It's not usually because they've decided that this wasn't the best path for them. Although there are some folks, but again, it's, it's small. So as we're thinking about gender expression, gender identity, and then maybe moving into social constructions of gender. So when I think about social constructions of gender, I think about how that has been created on a binary, right? Is that females are one way, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus or whatever useless distinctions we have created. So when we think about social construction for folks who are somewhere else on the gender continuum, what sort of expectations, literal conditioning do those folks encounter? Yeah, I think... I think it is 
warring and like working against the binary that we that we have and I it can be really challenging um I think that there kind of results in a lot of misgendering because there is like you said this the social construction, there is this idea um, in any culture, but, you know, thinking about our culture, um, what cons- what we consider to be representative of being masculine or feminine. And so I think for folks that are non-binary or don't ascribe to that binary, um, they oftentimes get put into the binary box. And then that leads them to have to decide, like, do I have the energy the spoons, the ability, and is it safe for me to jump in and actually say, actually, my pronouns are they, them, or I'm non-binary, or miss, or mister doesn't feel good for me, it's actually mix, or, you know, any of those things. Um, And so, and, and I think it's just, it's exhausting in some ways, kind of going through and having to continually just assert who you are and what feels good and what doesn't just because you decided to wear maybe a dress one day or a bow tie another day or some boots another day, or maybe you really are loving your facial hair, but you're also really loving your eyelashes and your makeup. Um, and it can be, yeah, it can be exhausting. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of emotional labor. I'm also curious, just knowing that the stakes can be very high for asserting one's gender identity, particularly for trans folks, uh, in terms of the, the, just the safety risks, you know, the risk for violence, the risk for harm that comes from that. Are the stakes similar for non-binary folks? You know, I think, I think they are in, in many ways. I think that the, I, I want, I mean, I think we know that trans women of color specifically are at the greatest risk of violence against them, against them, um, whether that's sexual violence, um, physical violence and murder. But I do think that there still is the risk of violence because, you know, people can be awful and for when they don't understand things, they can get violent or, or who knows, like, you know, who knows what could happen. So I think that that, that fear exists for anybody who is a member of of a marginalized group, or I think that's for anybody who um, is considering coming out in a situation. Like we're always assessing safety mm-hmm. and, if mm-hmm. it is, and not just physical safety. I mean, emotional safety, job security, safety, um, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It brings to mind um, a client that I had who um, identified as non-binary um, had male presenting characteristics and expression and who had a pretty public facing job and the, the feedback that they would get is please stop bringing your gender expression and identity constantly into your work. Cause your work doesn't have anything to do with that. And I mean, they had just like the best response, which is, you know, the it's in my body. It, I can't, I can't not walk into a room without my identity coming with me. And just, it just really hit me in hearing that particular client, you know, just how painful it is to have your, some, any aspect of your identity just sort of deemed inappropriate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, you know, just, yeah, not being sure what protections you do or don't have. Um, You know, those are, those are things that I think cishet 
folks don't have to navigate based on their cishetness, um, perhaps, you know, on, on any number of other other things, but that's a conversation for another time, um, but not based on their cishetness. They don't have to think about like, well, do I talk about who my partner is or do I, you know, assert my gender identity and my pronouns um, or not? And that's scary and disconcerting and distressing and makes it really hard to just be. I think. Yeah. Well, I th- that feels like a, a maybe a good practical place to go is in thinking about the specific protections. Can you give us kind of like a high level overview um, and whether it's a state overview or whether it's federal, what kinds of protections exist or don't exist for various gender identities? Yes. So I will, I will just say that I am actually not entirely sure what exists at this time because there have been, um, I, what I do know is that in 2022 alone, there have been 155 anti-trans bills that have been introduced. Um, that is up from 131 last year. And it was, I think only a couple of years ago that there were 39. So that has been a really big increase. So that's real um, intentional. That's a real yeah. on purpose increase. Very, what, very much. Why? why now? I, you know, I think it is partially due to um, parts of the political climate that we've been in for a while. I think that it's part of um, gender being a topic of conversation. And I think more and more people that are coming out and, you know, living their truth in an open way, there's more representation, which is amazing. Um, but also there's more people who have opinions on this, um, as if they have rights to have opinions on this and, and feeling threatened. Um, you know, I think a lot of the bills, not all of them, but a lot of the bills are centered or aimed at preventing trans girls and women from playing on female sports teams, you know, and they're, they're positioned in this way of protecting women, um, which is wild or, um, barring trans youth from using bathrooms or lockers that align with their gender identity. Um, and then restrictions on gender affirming medical care. I think it was earlier this year, um, the Texas governor, Um, himself issued a directive requiring child welfare agents to investigate gender affirming medical procedures as child abuse. Um, And so this idea that we could be taking trans kids away from their affirming families and then placed, you know, where. Um, So I, all that to say, you know, it's the landscape is changing so frequently. And I think that what I can speak to is that there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear for LGBTQIA plus people in the workplace, in medical care, within their family systems, um, because we're just not sure what is coming next at the federal level or at the state level or at the county level. So I have so many follow-up questions to this and thoughts around that. So I mean, something that shows up for me, kind of going back to the emotional labor of existing in an identity that is not uh, socially approved, I guess, you know, or mainstream approved. Um, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Just like weekly call my governor or legislator to find out, hey, have you passed anything that might harm me? Like, what is the protocol for making sure that you're safe and that something has it? been passed or legislated into action that could harm you in in such a wide range of areas, right? Whether it's athletics, whether it's, you know, which bathroom you can use. I mean, just the scope of how much you would have to keep up with to try to keep yourself safe 
um, it, that just sounds exhausting. Yeah, it, it is. It's just, it's just another thing on top of all the other things. Um, you know, I think what, what, what we do, what I try to do with my clients at least is just make sure that they're connected with the community. So, you know, really understanding and knowing our own legal landscape here, I think is a part of offering gender affirming care and just making sure that they're connected. And I think for myself, as much as I can staying up to date on, on some of that information too, to be able to kind of pass it along. Um, or if, you know, someone brings it up to me, then I go get information for us to talk about next time. But there are some really great organizations that, you know, we can keep an eye on. Equality NC is an amazing organization. They do a lot of advocacy and they post a lot of updates. Um, Transforming Families is a really great organization in a lot of different ways for a lot of different things. But oftentimes they do share legislative updates as well to, to kind of remain in the know. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the ACLU has lots of information and tracking on this. Um, there's another website, it's called Freedom Something, and it has a list of all of the bills that have been introduced in where, by state and where they are, whether they are passed, dead, or on the next level. So I think, I think that's part of it is kind of just checking in and then, you know, also just checking in with, with your employer, with, you know, your work, with your doctor's office. Um, I had a family call me to do um, an assessment essentially for their child who was seeking hormone affirming therapy. And they asked like, are, are you even able to do this? Or am I going to get in trouble if, if this happens? Because a lot of states are going after parents and going after healthcare providers um, who, who offer gender affirming care, which can also just mean affirming therapy, just therapy to offering a safer space for folks. So I think it's also exhausting for medical professionals too to try to deal with it. It's exhausting for families and parents. Um, I guess the best we can do right now. Yeah. Well, and I will also post those resources in the show notes so that providers can have a go-to list of ways to both keep themselves educated on, you know, what is going on in a, a governmental capacity and also be able to pass on to their clients. So that's really helpful. So, and I do want to come back to some of the specifics of the the legislative piece in a bit as we're coming back to what gender affirming care might look like in a counseling setting. Um, what are some ways that counselors, particularly folks who are cishet identifying, um, how can they enhance their ability to be more gender affirming in their counseling work? Yeah, you know, I think I think first and foremost. Um, Getting, getting training, you know, doing paid consultation or paid workshops or paid training and from clinicians of lived experience. I think that's the most important part. We have a lot of really amazing clinicians and educators. We have several right here in North Carolina that do one-to-one consults um, and there's several that do trainings as well. So I think investing some time in that, um, I think because it's the right thing to do and everybody has a gender experience. And so I think learning more about that is important, but also, you know, there, we, we also have our continuing education requirements and they're there for a reason. And so I think certainly, you know, dedicating some of that time to learning more about gender, learning more about gender affirming care, um, and learning more about how to author a letter, if that is something that you're, you're asked to do at some point. So I think, I think that's the biggest piece. And then you can also do some of your own self-study, you know, there's, there's lots of awesome YouTube channels. There's a lot of really great things out in media now, um, on Netflix or on other shows that talk about, 
um, you know, people's experiences or that center the lives and voices of trans folks. There's a lot of awesome creators um, on Instagram or TikTok and um, who are, you know, kind of freely donating their time and their labor to give information. And I think diversifying kind of your feed in that way is really important because the community is not a monolith and, you know, what might feel good or what might make sense for this person over here uh, might not make sense for this person over here. And so I do think having a variety of perspectives um, and of intersecting identities and perspectives, I think is also really, really important. Mm -hmm. As I'm, I'm thinking about your, that first recommendation to, seek out trainings being offered by people with lived experience that feels like it also uh, addresses the, the capitalistic aspect of it. Right. Which is, I think myself included, a lot of counselors will say, you know, I really want to donate to certain organizations that support various identities. I, you know, I can't, I never feel like I could donate enough, but you can also, you know, put the money toward folks who are, in those identities and offering the trainings. So I think that's such a great recommendation too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's, there's so many people and it's about also going to the right ones. Um, gender spectrum is also a really good option and they tend to have a lot of information for you to learn. Um, and then I will send you, I can't, there's two, one is not so good. One is good. Um, and one has all trainers of lived experience, um, and they have a variety of different topics. And so I will send that one for after this as well. Um, that then they have just webinars sort of throughout the year and on, on various topics too. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So as we think about ways we can enhance our knowledge, I think I'm so glad that you mentioned just in the overall topic content, how important it is to consider the blind spots, to really examine bias, to to go kind of eyes wide open into the baggage we are bringing, particularly if we are cishet folks with a lot of privilege. Um, What are some of the common gender blind spots that you have seen in clinicians? Yeah. um, I mean, honestly, everything and anything that we have internalized to like to discuss, to interpret and to code in a gendered way. So really it all goes back to language for me, just thinking about, um, I guess thinking about even those who might be listening to this um, or watching this. So most people would probably code me as female and and they'd happen to be right. My gender identity is female, but we don't actually know someone's gender identity until they tell us. But as we're moving through the world, we are absolutely coding people and, and to what their gender is based on our own internal biases and our blind spots. And we do that with every client too, unless or until, you know, they tell us otherwise. And so I think just starting there, just starting at the place of knowing that we are coding people into a binary gender, even though gender is not binary. And it's based on the way in which we have been conditioned to understand what it means to be male or female. So I think that's a piece of it. Um, you know, using gendered pronouns without being told someone's pronouns can be a blind spot. Using, you know, Mr. or Ms. or we're in the South, so I have to name this one, um, saying ma'am or sir all the time without being told someone's gender. Um, I, I tell my admin again and again, and it's really important to me at my practice that we do not use ma'am and sir unless we know for sure the person's gender. So I recognize we're in the South. I recognize it might be a little impolite, but I am fine to err on the side of not being super, super polite in order to avoid causing harm to someone else by misgendering them. 
So I think that's, that's a piece of it as well. Um, other things that I think about, um, I am from the North and in Michigan, we say, you guys, you guys, this, you guys, that when we're addressing a group of people. And I was really, really fortunate when I was leading a group of gender diverse teens, um, an individual therapy client who was in there with me, um, was brave enough to kind of stop me and be like, Hey, Dr. Bate, it actually doesn't feel super great for me when you address us as you guys. Um, she was a, a trans female. Um, teen client. And I was like, oh, and it never hit me that, you know, this language that I've grown up saying just to mean everybody um, doesn't actually mean everybody. It's actually quite a gendered term. So how did that land for you to be called out? I think I was, I was, I was embarrassed and I was apologetic, but I was also so glad. I was so glad that they felt comfortable enough to, to say that and say that, you know, when they needed to, that was really important to me. So I, from that second on, I had to work on it and I had to let go of the, you guys and my little Northern heart hurts every time I say y'all, but here I am saying y'all because y'all really does mean you all. Which I mean, gosh, how ironic to think of the South as being, you know, progressive in their language in any way and capacity <laughs> as someone from the South. I'm real familiar with how how wrong we can get it in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, and I mean, I asked that sort of like how did it land question just because I think something that I see in my work as an educator, you know, and that feels I, I just don't feel like I have it conceptualized in a granular enough way yet, which is how to help people with privilege learn to receive the constructive feedback, the, the feedback that, Hey, something you just said or did reflects your privilege and is, is not taking into account my lived experience. You know, are there other things that you feel like have, especially knowing that, I mean, no one has an all privileged or an all oppressed identity. So we're all, you know, kind of in this weird melting space of, you know, more or less privilege and different identities. But are there particular ways that you feel like you learned to lean in to the discomfort, to tolerate the discomfort of being called out? I mean, one of the things you you name that sounds super helpful is to say, hey, to reframe it as evidence of trust. Any other little tidbits that you think have made it more possible for you to hear? constructive criticism? Yeah, you know, I think for me, a big piece of it has just been doing, you know, some of my own work on unlearning things, um, especially, you know, I think as a white person and unlearning a lot of things around white privilege and that it doesn't, it's not a, it's not a dirty word. It's not a bad word. It just is like when you grow up in a privileged position in the United States, um, whatever that privilege piece is, you internalize messages. And so we have to unlearn them. And while it might not necessarily be the fault, my fault for the messages I received, it is my responsibility to do better and to unlearn them. And so I think taking away like blame and shame from it, and instead trying to take it into an active space of unlearning and trying to do better. And if we're going to be here, and we're going to be doing this work, we're going to get it wrong. And that is just a I think it's even on my website on our like about us page that we're going to get it wrong. Like that is one of our, 
our kind of understanding of being an anti-racist practice that we're going to get it wrong. And when we get it wrong, we're going to do our best to get it right so that we never get it wrong again. But we are going to get it wrong because we're not perfect. And because we have been, we live in a society that upholds, you know, majority groups, whether that is race or religion or gender or sexual orientation or family structure, what we think a family is supposed to look like or whatever, you know, any of those things. Um, so I think that's a part of it. Like just knowing we're going to get it wrong. It doesn't make us a bad person. Um, but I do think it makes us not great if we don't try. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I try to, all the, the other piece of that, that I try to bring in to concrete instructions on how to take ownership, you know, when your privilege shows up in some kind of problematic way is that there's so much in it for the people with the privileged identities to embrace and have permission to be wrong. You know, it's like, if you've been living your life under this sort of expectation of perfection, I mean, that's incredibly limiting, you know? So there's, there's this real gift, I think for, you know, as I, I kind of think about the identities that are that most prickle and bristle when called out, like whiteness is the main one, right. Um, is like, wow, it's actually been real liberating to be able to say, Oh, yeah, well, I did screw that up as opposed to getting locked in, I'm not allowed to screw up. So I have to fight and defend myself to the death around still being right. You know, like that's a way grosser way of being. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I think we, we apologize and we, then we work on doing better, you know, that that's what we do. And I think, you know, just reminding myself too, that everybody makes mistakes. Um, I have a really awesome friend. Um, and also he is a consultant for our group practice. He comes in uh, monthly or, or bi-monthly to offer consultation around gender diversity. He's a trans guy, um, who lives, um, on the West coast. Um, and he shared a story that he was working with a couple, um, and they were both non-binary and he used the language of you guys um, in that sort of all-encompassing way. And then he he noticed and he checked in and he's and he said, like, hey, let me check in really quick. You know, I, I noticed I said, you guys, how did that land with y'all? And then they said, like, actually not really great. So he apologized and moved on. But like he's a trans guy and he works mostly with trans and gender diverse people. And he made a mistake in language um, because habit because conditioning because you know learning and unlearning um so i think also just reminding myself that everybody makes mistakes and it's okay we just need to again apologize don't over apologize because then that's awkward too <laughs> and um, apologize and you know you work to do better and take action steps and then move forward any other common gender blind spots that we're leaving out you know, I think just, I mean, I think it just does all go to assuming one's gender and what they like and what they don't like. And so I think just remembering, like, just, just throwing away everything that you've ever learned about gender, because it's really about the person. It's really about the way that the person experiences their gender and their gender identity. Um, and it's really about what they do that feels good for them. So, you know, kind of remembering again, you know, what I said about how their identity and their expression might not always line up. Um, and, and just being curious and being open. I think about, um, 
Other examples I think about are like gender reveal parties. Um, this is my this is my pet peeve. Um, I when they also set unnecessary fires a lot of times. So like, there's that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, so anytime I get an invite, my friends, I, I love my friends. They have gender reveal parties, but anytime I get an invite, I kind of respond like, yes, I absolutely will come to learn about the natal sex on the ultrasound of your child. Um, because that's what it is. We can't reveal someone's gender, right? Like our gender is an internal sense of who we are. So what we're really doing is revealing the natal sex, we're revealing what the doctors have said based on the anatomy that they've looked at based on any tests they've run in terms of like, you know, chromosomes and, and structures and all of those things. Only a person can reveal their own gender. Um, you know, in a baby who has not been born cannot reveal their own gender. Um, and I think the other piece that I think is a big one and has been a bigger one recently is just, you know, really checking ourselves in our language relating to reproduction and reproductive health, and especially around the conversation around reproductive rights. It's not only a woman's rights issue. It's mm-hmm. a person with a uterus issue or a person who can get pregnant issue. There are many, many men who get pregnant and have children. Um, there are many men with uteruses or ovaries. Um, and there are also many women who do not have uteruses or ovaries. So I think that is one that I have seen a lot of folks who I know to be um, you know, generally very inclusive and, and allies and, and all of those things kind of walk right through without recognizing um, that there's, I think, a big blind spot there. And there are a lot of men who are being left out of the conversation around reproductive rights. Is there some sort of underlying mechanism, do you think, to the resistance to letting gender mean whatever it means for anybody? Like, what do you think is the mechanism of the until? I'm comfortable with this until. I think it, I mean, I think it's just people's own discomfort. I think it's people's own internalized, you know, transphobia and the way that it comes out that we learn that this is what gender looks like. And I think that anything that challenges our status quo or challenges what something needs to be or or quote unquote should be or what we've learned what it is, I think is uncomfortable. And I think people don't do well with discomfort or sitting in discomfort. I think people hate change kind of broadly in general. Um, And so I think it's all of that. I think it just feels feels different and it's threatening in a lot of different ways. Um, And I think that that's the piece of it. You know, a lot of people fear what they don't know. And a lot of people don't know a lot about gender diversity. And so I think, you know, in a very broad way, there is that. And then I also think anytime, you know, marginalized or oppressed folks, you know, gain additional access and power that feels threatening to the majority. And I think that's a piece of it too that just needs to be said. Uh, you shared a link to the DSM as part of the background for this episode. And I feel like that just speaks volumes to the challenges people face when they're seeking mental health care across the gender spectrum. I mean, I can certainly connect as a female identified person with the subtle, not so subtle, but kind of subtle oppression of certain supposedly female traits being pathologized as various diagnoses, you know, so being too sensitive is actually borderline personality disorder, for example, (laughs) you know, Um, but to me, it just doesn't, it really doesn't get much more blatant than to say your entire gender identity is pathological, as was the case for trans folks until 
the last version of the DSM came out in 2013. So as we think about, if we played that tape all the way through, what are some of the outcomes associated with treating your gender as a disorder? Yeah. I mean, I think that that just from the start is incredibly problematic. So I am, I'm so glad that we have, you know, moved away from calling it gender identity disorder. Um, and instead, you know, moving to a space of, of looking at gender dysphoria as the piece of clinical distress or impairment. Um, and I mean, without getting too much on a tangent, I mean, sexual orientation was also pathologized in the DSM um, and, you know, it's no longer there at all, but that was also pathologized in the DSM um, until, I mean, fairly recently still, I mean, recently in terms of, you know, a couple like 20, 30, 40 years ago, I mean, that still feels pretty recent to me. Um, so I think it's really important kind of going back to what gender dysphoria really is. I think it's important to just really name and clarify um, what gender dysphoria is and what the diagnosis really means, because I think a lot of people don't understand. And it's unfortunately used by a lot of lay people to, you know, target trans folks and to, you know, say that they are mentally ill. Um, when what it really is, is gender dysphoria is the feeling of discomfort or distress that might occur in people whose gender identity differs from their sex assumed at birth um, or related to sex-related physical characteristics. And it's the distress and the discomfort that captures the essence of the diagnosis. It's not at all about or related to simply being a trans or gender diverse person. Um, and I think with that, you know, trans and gender diverse people might experience gender dysphoria at some point in their lives. However, some trans and gender diverse people might also feel completely at ease with their bodies with or without medical intervention. Um, I have plenty of gender diverse clients that I see who I'm treating for depression or anxiety or grief who do not have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria because they're not experiencing any incongruence or distress related to any potential incongruence. So I think, I think that's just really important to identify and to distinguish. Um, however, in order to receive gender affirming medical interventions, a diagnosis of gender dysphoria is typically required, especially for insurance to even begin to consider covering it. Tell us a little bit about access to care issues that can impact folks on the gender spectrum. So uh, maybe first off, what are some of the special concerns related to seeking medical care if you're a gender diverse person? Yeah, so you know, I think I think just kind of to start with, I think it is just finding enough, making sure that you're finding an affirming provider in, in the first place and a competent provider. Um, you know, we we know there's there's studies that show that healthcare providers exhibit similar levels of bias as the larger population. Um, and this can result in many transgender and non-binary and gender diverse people not seeking care because they don't feel safe or because they've had bad experiences. I can't tell you how many gender diverse clients I've had that have been in hospital situations, whether it's psychiatric hospitals or whether it is uh, medical hospitals recovering from some sort of a procedure um, and just being chronically misgendered. And so when that happens, like you're, you don't want to go back, like you'll do anything to not go back. So I think, I think that's a, a piece of it. Um, and then I think the other piece is just the sheer amount of hoops that folks have to jump through to access 
gender affirming medical procedures, if that's something that they're they're seeking, is is outrageous. I mean, from wait lists to having to get letters upon letters upon letters. Um, and I mean, I think there's it's cost prohibitive, it's time prohibitive. If people are already working on managing something, you know, like depression or anxiety or social anxiety, or you know, there's aspects maybe of neurodivergence, it's really hard to keep emailing and picking up the phone and calling and, and doing all that. It also really sucks to have to explain your gender to three different people to get three different letters. Um, some adults even need a letter to be prescribed hormone affirming therapy. Um, if that is required by their provider or their insurance. Um, but there are many, many, many places here, um, in North Carolina or for folks in North Carolina to access that do use an informed consent model to prescribe hormone affirming therapy. So I always try to encourage folks to check out those places, but there's still a lot of providers that ask for a letter, um, or insurance requires the letter if they want to get reimbursed, um, or get it covered. So I think, I think those are just, uh, a beginning place of some of the, the really big hoops that people have to jump through. Well, I think that's something that I personally have questions about in terms of the process of getting gender affirming medical care. It sounds like it is really wide ranging in terms of what might be asked of the client. Is there any standardization at this point? And if so, like at what level does it happen? Is it depending on the medical provider? Is it depending on the insurance? What kinds of factors come into play there? Yeah, so um, most most places go based off of the WPATH standards of care. Um, version 7 was what folks used for a really long time, um, but they just came out with version 8, and we are all still kind of sifting through this. Gosh, I don't know how many pages. I think it's like 300 pages. It's a lot of pages. pages. Yeah, to yeah. really kind of figure out you know, what it means, what it means for us, what it means for clients. But um, also... I don't feel confident at all that insurance is going to catch up to standards of care eight anytime soon. So I think that's also part of navigating, you know, which standards of care are we going to be using for insurance related, you know, reimbursement issues. So I think, you know, that is what we use. That is what we kind of try to guide off of as much as we can. Um, but for everything, you know, for everything else, um, it really depends. I think my answer around all this is going to be an unsatisfying, it depends again and again and again. So um, it depends on the medical professional. It depends on insurance. It depends on age. Um, you know, there's different requirements for minors versus adults. Um Currently, I would say for most surgical procedures, one or more, and in some cases, three or four letters are required for adults who are seeking gender affirming surgical procedures. Um, I do know some surgeons who do not require letters and they use an informed consent model, but they are cash pay. And those surgeries can range from, you know, fourteen or $16,000 to upwards of $100,000, depending on what surgery a person is pursuing. So, you know, most most folks can't afford to do cash pay and so they have to try to go through the insurance route and rabbit hole which will without a doubt require at least one letter if not more. When we're thinking just about the provider level, so the surgeon who is saying I need a letter, I'm cash pay, but I need a letter. What is the function of the letter? Is it something to do with liability on the the surgeon's end, like, where is that requirement actually coming from? 
Yeah, I think that would be, you know, my sense. I think my sense is, you know, kind of spreading liability or kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit. Um, and it's rooted in transphobia. It, it, that's what it is. It's rooted in this idea that a person is, you know, going to regret this decision for that this about the surgery that the surgeon did. Um, and they want to be able to, yeah, spread or expand liability. It's rooted in this idea that a person's informed consent is not good enough to make this decision about the surgical procedure for their body. And so we need a psychologist to, you know, make sure that they do indeed have the capacity to give informed consent and that they're, the implication is that they're not, you know, crazy or mentally ill, which is awful. So that, that is what it's rooted in. It's rooted in this really awful transphobia and the idea that, you know, people can't make decisions about their own body. I'm so glad that you explained that. I mean, because that just gives me this real making a deal with the devil at the crossroads kind of feeling about seeking in any kind of like substantial gender affirming care. Um, wow. The person can't make good decisions and the decision to alter anything about your gender is ultimately a bad one. And so me as a provider, I need to protect myself from when you inevitably decide that was not a good idea. That's just really, really jacked up. Yeah. It's, it's super gross. Um, and, and I don't think, again, I don't think, you know, not all surgeons do that. Most surgeons are requiring letters. I think at this point, truly gender affirming surgeons are at this point requiring letters for insurance. A lot of the cash pay providers I know don't require the letters, which is, is awesome the way it should be. Um, but yeah, there are still some folks out there who I think probably need to unlearn, you know, things that they were taught and, think about liability and their license in a, a broader way. And like, what is, what are you actually saying here? Like, what are you actually suggesting um, with this letter? If we move into the insurance space, what has been your experience in terms of what procedures are even really covered? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, again, an unsatisfying, it depends. So I have had folks that have had insurance cover all of, of the procedures. So whether we're talking about um, top surgery procedures or bottom surgery related procedures, um, facial feminization types of procedures, um, the um, trach shave type procedures, um, you know, um, hysterectomies, you know, a lot of different procedures. I have had insurances that cover, um, but I've also had insurance situations where insurance, you know, we think they're going to cover and we've got the five letters or whatever is needed and they've all been submitted and the surgery date is scheduled and they've already waited three years for the surgery date between wait lists and consults and getting letters and all of the things, um, just for it to then be denied. Um, and, and not even supposed to be denied. It's just the person who happened to be reviewing it that day felt as though this doesn't, you know, work with the insurance policy. And so then there's like a series of appeals that has to happen only to then it not be denied. But I think a piece of that goes down to human error and human bias. And again, transphobia, like the person who's reviewing that claim or reviewing that, you know, the pre-off at that time might just be like, nope, nope, not gonna, not gonna approve this. And I, and that's so scary and wild. Yeah. That so arbitrary. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can give us kind of a case example of just what, so if a, an adult client comes in and wants to pursue, 
well, maybe I, I'll assume that bottom surgery is probably one of the, the more complicated, you know, one of the ones where insurance is going to say, I need like so many letters and you need, you know, just so much of a process. So first of all, is that accurate? Is bottom or top surgery kind of like the most complicated to seek out and get, or are there other procedures that might be kind of higher, considered higher acuity, I guess? Um, I think bottom surgery generally is the one that requires the highest number of letters. Um, usually, usually top surgery, it depends on insurance, of course, but usually top surgery requires one letter. Most bottom surgeries um, require two to three letters, again, depending on a variety of factors. Gotcha. Okay. So let's say you've got a client who is ready to pursue bottom surgery. Walk me through what their process might look like in terms of getting letters, connecting with certain providers, timeline. Yeah. So, um, you know, wait lists for surgical consults, just the consult. So just to assess goodness of fit, to assess if this is a good, you know, if it, if it makes sense to move forward with the surgeon, wait lists can range from six months to two or three years. Um, and it, it, and it really does just depend there. There are a lot of really excellent surgeons in this area. I think we're really lucky here, um, but some people still do travel to other places. Some people travel to California um, or New York or Pennsylvania or Texas or Florida to get some of these surgeries, but there are some really great options locally. So, but it could be six months to two years just to get the consult. Um and then some surgeons require laser hair removal for some surgeries, like such as bottom surgery. So that can take another six to nine months alone to be able to get um, the hair growth to be at a space that the surgeon feels is is good to go. Um, and then many insurances do require that a person be on hormone affirming therapy for 12 months, as well as living as their quote unquote true gender for 12 months or more as well. So there is, you know, this 12 month piece that is written into a lot of insurance standards too, which further delays the process. Um, and then some people might have barriers to accessing the letters that they need. And so kind of jumping from place to place, trying to find the letter that, that is, that works and that's appropriate and getting, you know, the right people to be able to write the letter. Um, so I think, I think, it can be a really long process. I've had clients that are able to move through it in a year, year and a half, but I've also had clients where it's been four, four years or more um, based on any number of things. I'm also connecting with the layers of identity there. So how various types of privilege would impact that outside of gender. So, I mean, if I'm you know, a 20 something and I don't have a college degree and I'm moving from one job to the next, maybe in a period that is less than a year. And so my benefits change. If I even have access to benefits, you know, do I have to start that process all over to prove to a new insurance that I've spent long enough living in this gender to warrant care? You, you may need to get a different letter or a new letter because some insurances have different requirements. Um, most insurances do have the same requirements, but there's some that have these wild, not at all aligned with our standards of care um, requirements. And so that would mean like your letter that was written probably isn't good enough. And so you do have to get an updated letter, or a different letter, um, or you might've had coverage and now you don't, or you might've not, now you do. And so I think that's a part of it as well. Um, 
I, at our practice, and I, I believe deeply in this, we offer single session, pay what you can letters. So you don't, there's no requirement for you to be in therapy with us because that's not, not a requirement. Um, and it is single session. One time you come in, um, we assess the information that we have to, you pay what you can, it can be $0 or it could be $150. It's, it's whatever you can. Um, and all of our clinicians can offer this service. So it's not uncommon for someone to get two letters from our practice, which hopefully helps. And there's also, um, several directories that can be found online with other folks that also do the same thing that offer no cost or pay what you can single session letters. I will plan to link out in the show notes resources for folks to become effective letter writers because I know there will be questions about who's eligible and what needs to go in the letter. And I think there are trainings that folks can access around that because I I also want to hear in, in the time we have left about other strategies for advocacy based on your own experience. Um, so if we move into this broader social context and institutional advocacy, what are some of the concrete ways that mental health professionals can become activists for, we'll expand it beyond gender to LGBTQ plus rights? Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, being up to date with what is going on in your legislature. Um, You know, when I came to find that just this year, I think it was this year, the end of last year, I feel like time is a little bit of a warp ever since 2020 for me. Um, But there were, you know, three bills introduced very recently that were anti-trans legislation. And um, as a member of the North Carolina Psychological Association, there was some conversation on our listserv and I, I jumped in, you know, someone said, do we, does someone want to help author a response to these grounded in psychological science? Um, and, and I did. And there was a team of us who jumped in and did that, worked together, had some meetings over Zoom. Um, and we authored three responses to those anti-trans bills um, that none of them, you know, move forward. But I think knowing when that's happening, and then I think spreading the word, I have posted in a ton, I think around that time I was posting in a ton of Facebook groups about like, hey, just click here. If you click here, it's already pre-written, but send this letter to your senator. Um, and Equality NC does a really great job at pre-populating those kinds of letters. Human Rights Campaign does a really great job. People get things set up on change.org. Um, and of course, I'd obviously recommend read it, make sure it does resonate with you and it does you know, speak what you want to say. But I think that's that's part of it, just trying to stay on top and then jumping into a place where we can use, um, you know, our platform as mental health professionals and, you know, social scientists to be able to offer science based um, responses to some of these things. So I will push back with my own personal feelings of hopelessness. (laughs) um, So when I think about reaching out to legislators, my assumption is one, I'm going to be, and this is awful. It's very judgy, but here it is. Um, I assume I'm going to be talking to someone who has no idea about gender. I assume one, they're not going to have any idea what I'm talking about. If I were to say, here are all the reasons why this bill is bad. Um, and two, I have this assumption that even if they did kind of get it, and I really don't assume all people are dumb. So I'll just throw that out there. But even if they were on board for the science of it, that what good would it do? You know, so I know I'm not right. What is the mechanism of if I write this letter, it's going to make a difference? Can you tell me the how of that? 
So I think there's, there's two things for me, maybe there's more than two, but two that are coming to mind right now. Um, if I don't write the letter, it's definitely not going to make a difference. So I think that's, that's the piece I start with. Um, maybe it won't make any difference if I do it, but it definitely isn't going to make a difference if I don't. So I kind of just start there. Um, I also think about a lot of movements and things that have happened over time and like, and they happen because, you know, a group of people decided to move forward and say something. So I'm hopeful that if enough people move forward and say something, even if the people who are reading it don't understand really what we're saying, they at least understand that this big majority of people have a feeling about this and this is what they want you to do. So I try to go from that, that perspective of, you know, numbers are on our side or I want numbers to be on our side. So I want as many people as possible to write this letter and send this letter. And then, you know, I do always get responses in some of these things that I've done. Um, I don't think it's actually coming from our Senator. I think it's coming from the desk of our Senator, our senators, but I get a response. And so what that tells me is that at least someone's thinking about it. Someone is at least reading these things, seeing an influx coming in. I don't know what those numbers look like, but I hope they're high on my side for advocacy. Um, and is at least thinking enough about this to author a response and send it back to every single person who has. Just very recently, there was um, they were voting to codify um, marriage equality in the North Carolina legislature so that if anything were to happen down the road um, at, in the Supreme Court and if they were sending it back to the states, it would be codified here in North Carolina. Um, and so I sent I sent one of those kind of pre-templated ones and added in my own piece, um, both as a psychologist and as a queer person. Um, and I received a response from one of our senators and um, it was helpful in some ways and it was unsatisfying in others where it talked a little bit about religious liberty and religious freedoms, but it was satisfying in the sense of there was an agreement that marriage equality should stay. Um, but at least at least there was a response and it was a response that hit on, you know, key issues. Although there's some I might not have agreed with, it still hit on key issues and it, and it was good. Like, I'm glad I sent it because obviously they're thinking about it. So, well, I mean, just as you share, you know, taking a template, but then adding your personal lived experience as a queer person. I mean, I'm just connecting with the vulnerability of being an advocate, you know, for a group you're a member of, you know, when someone, responds to say, yeah, but religious equality as an argument against your right, your personal right. I mean, that's, that's a tender place to be. Yeah. And I thought about responding again and I was like, you know what? I just want, I am only fighting this fight right now. I'm fighting the fight of getting marriage equality codified here. Um, so I am just going to let it be. And it is what it is right now. Um, and I will fight that fight <laughs> at a different time. Mm -hmm. So. Well, and maybe that's another thing to add to the the why um, is for folks who, you know, are come with privilege, you know. So one reason why is because if you don't do it, then there's no chance of making a change in this way. Um, you know, and this other piece is if you don't do it, then someone who's a member of this community is going to have to put themselves on the line. So maybe just do it so that someone who's lived experience, you know, aligns with this situation so they don't have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they can take, take a break for yeah, every take now. A break from all the heavy lifting. Yeah. 
yeah, my, um, my cup gets very empty sometimes and I just refill it. Like sometimes I just can't engage in this string on social media where I would need to be providing education. Or sometimes I just can't engage at the dinner table, um, with, you know, extended family members over the holidays. Um, I can, but I got to check in with myself too, because if I don't have a cup at all, I can't do anything. So I have to make sure that I still have my cup. Yeah. Well, maybe as we come to the end of our time, maybe tell me a little bit about how you do refill your cup so that you can be in this work in a sustainable way. Yeah. You know, I think just really checking in with myself about when I can do things and when I can't. So I try as much as I can to say yes and to advocate and to jump in where I can and have conversations. But I think also trying to assess if if it's a conversation that is really going to matter. Um, I do try to optimistically, again, kind of default to, well, if we don't have it, then it's definitely not going to change. If we have it, then maybe it'll change. But I think there's some situations where it's pretty clear to me that there's not going to be a change in a person's perspective or new information for them to have. So trying to dedicate my time and my energy to people who I think have an opportunity to listen and hear and consider just to plant some seeds, even if they're not going to be watered for years and years and years. Um, so being being choosy in that way. And then I think just like surrounding myself in general with really affirming people and supportive people and, you know, trying to pay attention to the positive and happy news stories as opposed to the ones that, you know, make me just want to crawl under the covers and just not do any more advocacy and just be done and not come out of my room. So I think, I think trying to balance it out in that way. And then sometimes just not listening to the news at all. Like there are times where, although I want to be present and be able to be current on events with my clients, there are times where I just can't. Um, and I can't until they bring something up. And then I'm just honest. I just say like, I was on a bit of a news break, but you know, this sounds important to you. So I will look into this and we can definitely talk about it more next time. Um, but I'm still interested in hearing, you know, what, what this means to you or how this impacted you or things like that. So um, I think sometimes we think that we need to be up to date on all of the things because a lot of our clients are coming in distressed about all of the things. And I'm also a human. I'm a human and I need to take breaks from all of the things sometimes. Well, there's so much more we could talk about and so many questions we didn't get to, which I'm sad about. So maybe maybe you just come back and that would be great. <laughs> that would be lovely. I'd be happy to come back. I could talk about all of this all day. And I have a lot of stories of my own that I'd be happy to share too. So we'll just have to do a part two at some point. I think that sounds wonderful. Well, Dr. Bate, I am so thankful for your time today and, you know, glad to know that you are being a model for this work, you know, for advocacy work and, and carving a path for folks who also want to find a way in to making a difference in a, a different way. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for having, you know, this platform and, and for this podcast. It's excellent. So I really do appreciate you. And I was really glad to be here today. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening.